It is your Friday daily delivery. I'm Michael Rand. Good to be back for the final show of the week. It's been a fun week. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. Um, lots of fun guests for everybody from the Star Tribune to Ariel Powers from the Lynx a couple days ago, Adam Thielen, former Vikings receiver yesterday. If you missed any episode, it is completely legal. In fact, it is encouraged to go back and listen to any episodes you might have missed. So please go check those out when you are done with this one. It'll take you a while to get through this one, though, because lots of good stuff coming up on today's show. John Marthaler covers soccer for various outlets, podcasts, writes his own material as well. Join me here in a little bit to talk about Minnesota United and some of the familiar problems they've had this season scoring, where we are with the Emmanuel Reynoso saga, which is, of course, tied into their difficulty scoring this season. Talk about the the positive side of that coin, which is that they've been very good defensively, and when they've been extra good defensively is when they've tended to secure points this season. But where's this franchise heading? Where could they do things better, especially in the world of analytics? John and I will get into that a little bit. So just some interesting soccer talk with John coming up here in a little bit. Got some Vikings mock draft 2024 thoughts. Not like hot take type stuff, but kind of an interesting thought I had reading Todd McShay's way too early 2024 mock draft and just kind of realizing what we're in store for for the next, I don't know, 10 months, 11 months, uh, kind of kind of this cycle we're going to get back on with the Vikings as it pertains to quarterbacks and Kirk Cousins. First, though, what did I miss? I've been meaning to get to this for a while, but I've had too much other stuff, and I didn't want to like use it in kind of a small way or waste it on a day where it might get kind of buried. So I'm going to lead with it today. Really interesting podcast about a week ago with Kevin Garnett and uh, Paul Pierce, former Celtics teammates, Ticket and the Truth. It's a Showtime basketball thing. It came right on the heels of right after the Wolves lost to the Nuggets in the the Western Conference opening round of the playoffs. Um, You know, it was just just an interesting kind of dynamic. They talked Timberwolves for eight or nine minutes, and all of it was kind of fascinating to me. So I wanted to kind of pick out some of what I thought was most interesting as it kind of pertains to now, what these guys think, because these, these are the guys that get the peek behind the curtain, right? Like, we get somewhat of a peek behind the curtain in the media, but these guys played the game, hashtag played the game. Shout out to my friend John Sharkman. But, uh, you know, if, uh, if, if you played the game, you are privy to different opinions, you're privy to different people you talk to, and you see the game differently. So when they start talking Timberwolves, especially somebody, somebody so invested like KG still is, obviously, in this team, in this city, I pay attention. So here are some of the takeaways I had from that excellent segment they had on the Timberwolves. First things first, they got into it with Paul Pierce saying the Wolves messed up when they didn't put KG on the ownership team, except he didn't say messed up. He used a word they can use on that show and we don't use on this show. KG mostly took the high road on that. We all know he's got his own issues with Glenn Taylor, the, the you know, the, the outgoing owner of the Timberwolves, the owner of the Star Tribune, by the way. Um, they've had their issues over the years, especially after KG was traded away, uh, especially after how things ended here. But he, he took the high road for the most part and talked more about his interest in the new ownership group with Mark Laurie and A-Rod and how those guys are really aiming to change the culture here, to change how things operate, that they're invested in the city and making the Timberwolves part of the city, which I thought was interesting. I thought he he was he had some good thoughts on kind of the 
the 30,000-foot view that the ownership, the new ownership group is going to take and how that can help the Wolves, help Minneapolis, help downtown. I'm probably not doing it justice just by talking about it. This is one of the things I feel like you need to listen to the episode, so please go find that. But that stood out to me as one of the more interesting things that they bandied about on that episode. As far as basketball stuff, though, there was plenty of that as well. Um, you know, both of the both KG and Paul Pierce talking about how the Wolves need to build around Anthony Edwards and Carl Anthony Towns. You know, KG going into the specifics of you know what what they can do with a two and a five who can play pick and pop, pick and roll, things like that. How many different ways they can hurt you offensively? KG talking about how he was surprised in the playoffs that Gobert wasn't better in a lot of cases against Jokic, matched up one on one, kind of disappoint. I could hear some disappointment in KG's voice talking about Gobert in general, and Paul Pierce talking about if they can get rid of Gobert, who they just got, by the way. I had good luck with that. I don't think that's going to happen, and I don't think they want that to happen, but you would really unlock um, Anthony Edwards if you were able to move on from Rudy Gobert. I, like I said, I don't think that's going to happen. They got to figure this out. They got to figure this too big lineup out. Even though KG says you can't play that way right now, I think they're kind of stuck that way. But what's interesting is thinking about them them both talking about how Towns is a foundational piece, and I think that gets argued somewhat here about how what kind of piece Carl Anthony Towns is. He's obviously, you know, a max player, max contract player that kicks in after next season. He's been a first round pick. He's been to the All Star game. He's been a He's been an all-NBA player. This year, the injuries and not as effective and kind of learning to play the four again and playing the five, still kind of where he fits into this hierarchy, I think, is the ultimate offseason question. But was interesting to hear both KG and uh, and Paul Pierce talk about Cat in a way that he they still feel like he's a foundational piece. He's the superstar that you have to build around. More Ant than Cat, but definitely still Cat, that you've got to figure out how to build around those guys and that ownership and management sometimes doesn't understand how to build around those guys in the right way. And I don't know if that's still more Gobert talk, veiled Gobert talk, veiled Gobert talk. I'm not sure what it was exactly, but... That, to me, was an interesting piece of their discussion, that they they still think it's an ant and cat show and not just an ant show. I, I don't know how the Wolves get better. We've talked about this. I don't know how they get fundamentally better if you can't build in a different way, if you maybe eventually have to trade Carl Anthony Towns to get pieces back to reshape this roster, because I don't think a Gobert trade is the way out of the box because of where his value might be. Anything you do with Gobert is going to be compared to what you gave up for Gobert, and that's never going to be the same. But that, to me, is an interesting piece as we think about this moving forward. Like, what is Cat's role and how these two guys see him is maybe a little bit different than the way I see him right now. KG also has an interesting take on Kyle Anderson, saying he thought the Wolves trusted Kyle Anderson a little bit too much this season. Said he liked Kyle Anderson's game, likes his versatility, but that they maybe put him in positions where he was not able to succeed sometimes because they were asking him to do too much. And it's kind of funny because I felt some of that, especially in the playoffs, especially in big moments, as good as they were when Kyle Anderson was on the court this year. He's he's more of a more of a a Swiss Army knife kind of foundational kind of piece that you can utilize in a lot of different ways, more so than a guy that you should be predicating a lot of your stuff around. And I felt like by default sometimes he was he was asked to do a little bit more creation than he should be. Like he should be like 
If Kyle Anderson is the fourth best player on the court, but he's kind of the glue that's holding everything together, that's great. If he's the second, if he's playing like the second best player on the court, then you've got some problems because you're asking him to extend further than his skill set will take him. You're asking him to play above his pay grade, above his skill set. So I thought that was interesting that KG brought that up because as good as Kyle Anderson was this year, as valuable as he was this year, as much as I can't imagine where they would be this year, this past year without Kyle Anderson, they probably would not have been a playoff or even maybe a play-in team without his contributions in a lot of those nights. they got to figure out a way to maybe depend a little bit less on him, and maybe that comes with the eventual maturity, the continued maturity of Anthony Edwards in that playmaking role. Maybe that comes with a better you know, backup point guard play. Maybe that comes with you know, a more established kind of rotation, guys who can shoot the ball, guys who can get a bucket off the bench. Whatever it is, I liked KG's point on that because we've bought, we've been heaping praise on Kyle Anderson all year, and that to me felt like a valid critique, not necessarily of Kyle Anderson, but how he was deployed and how much they depended on him. Final thing that I thought was interesting, kind of goes back to the beginning, KG's passion for the Twin Cities, for Twin Cities sports, Naming off, he's, he knows all the team names still. He, he didn't hesitate. Talked about the Twins, the Vikings, the Wild. Says, we got a soccer team here now. He knows the city still like the back of his hand. He he left here, but he still has a, his heart is still here. He praised the fans here. Again, what that means, I don't know, but it's interesting to me it, how much he still cares about Minnesota, even though you know his his first era, his first decade, you know, decade plus here, ended in 2007, and you know his time here again ended seven years ago. Whenever it was when you know when Tom Thibodeau regime came in and they got rid of him. So that to me is interesting too, just how much he still seems like he cares about Minnesota, how much he cares about Minnesota sports and the success, not just of these teams, but this market in general. So go listen to that episode. Like I said, KG and Paul Pierce, Showtime Sports, Ticket and the Truth. It's it was really it's a really good show. Anytime KG talks, I listen because he's he's a really sharp guy. He's really interesting. He breaks it down with no nonsense. So I really enjoyed that episode in particular. Hope you will go listen to it whenever you are all fully caught up on the Daily Delivery Podcasts. Take a playcation to Mystic Lake. With 24-7 gaming, the good times never have to end. And you can satisfy your cravings at our restaurants and bars. Or relax in one of our luxurious hotel rooms. Those that play together, stay together. And don't forget to join Club M so you can spark new memories and bask in the rewards along the way. Follow the lights to Mystic Lake, where every day is play day. Happy to bring on John Marthaler right now. You can find him, of course, on the Sportive Podcast. You can find him at his own website, johnmarthaler.com. Um, John, where else can we find you again? You can find me here talking to you in this podcast. <laughs> That's true. That is the most immediate place that you can find John. Yeah. Uh, John knows a lot about a lot of things, but he knows especially a lot about soccer and Minnesota United. So I want to have a conversation with him now about kind of where this team is at. Um, and John, it's kind of interesting. I think the Loons have been a pretty good defensive club, I think, throughout, or at least have been good at not allowing goals throughout a lot of their history, whether that's goaltending, whether whatever it is. This year, it does definitely feels like their identity, or whenever things are going well, they're more likely to win 1-0 than they are to win you know, 2-1 or 3-2. The offense has not been great, and it's led to, you know, after a pretty good start, has led to four winless matches in a row now in Major League Soccer, including a nil-nil draw last weekend. Um, 
in the midst of all this, John, we've got Emmanuel Reynoso still missing their best player, their playmaker, their star. They went and tried to get him in Argentina again, reportedly a few weeks ago. That got brought up on the last broadcast. Um, Taylor Twelman bringing it up on that Apple TV broadcast. Give me the give me the thirty thousand foot view of this team right now, and then we'll kind of focus in on a few of these other things. I think the thirty thousand foot view of this team is still, in a lot of ways, they're still waiting waiting for Emmanuel Reynoso. They uh, there's no good way to replace a guy like Emmanuel Reynoso, but. So far this season, it does seem like their their strategies for replacing him has just been to pound various square pegs into that particular round hole. They they they've tried they've tried changing their approach their offensive approach a little bit. Now they they signed uh the new player they signed Sang Bing Jong. They've sort of started trying to put him into that same role in the setup that they've used. I, I say traditionally, but at least over the past few years where there's sort of one central chance creator that the whole offense revolves around. And I, I think that's a little bit unfair to John, to be honest with you. He's not really that type of player. He doesn't really play that way. And so I, I think part of the offensive struggles is they're just trying to figure out how they're going to play with the players they have while also, as you mentioned, still hopefully still hoping to try to get Reynoso back the way, the way that Taylor Twelman mentioned it on the broadcast on Sunday it makes it sound like they're trying to coax him out of the house, like like trying to get a I, I say this, we both have young kids, but trying to get a three year old to get his shoes on and yes. get in the car to go to school. You you know, it's something we both understand. Just did but, that. Yeah. <laughs> literally still bearing the scars of it right now, yes. still calming down from it, Um, which obviously I mean, he's a he's a grown he's a grown adult. It's obviously not like that. But in, in as far as the team goes, it's it really feels like they're just trying to survive until either they can do something about that in terms of bringing another player in to play that role or to get Reynoso back. And obviously Heath had to address it in the, in the post game press conference, but they've, I I think they've been working consistently to try to keep the lines of communication open. I, I don't know how often somebody has actually gone down to Argentina the way that, the way that Twelman reported it, somebody was actually down there trying to get him to get on the plane. But obviously, they're still going to keep those lines of communication open, and they're going to do everything they can to get him back here. And it sounds like they thought that they, maybe they had made some progress, and then to not make, you know, not ultimately be able to bring him back here. You know, and then there's the whole question of even if they do, even if they are able to get him back here at a certain point, like how how much time does it take him to get re adjusted reintegrated into the offense like i don't think you just go from what whatever's going on right now in argentina to on the field immediately so it does feel like the, the clock which began ticking right in january basically right like this has been a problem for four months or so um the, the clock is it, it's it's been ticking for a while and it's only ticking uh faster now yeah i i think that they would have had a harder time reintegrating him four weeks ago when they were playing well and they'd won they they'd won three out of their first five and drawn the other two and everyone was saying saying things about well man maybe they're better off without it maybe maybe they can continue playing this way now they haven't scored in three weeks they haven't won in five weeks they haven't won since the start of april i think they would even in the locker room if i think the guys in the locker room would say we need we need him to come back regardless of the 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 sort of culture the dressing room 
kind yeah. of activities of that. There, I think everybody would look at it and say, well, we just need better players. We need guys yeah. back in the lineup. So it might as as bad as this winless streak has been in terms of getting Emmanuel Reynoso back, it might have made that part easier. Now, it's not just him, though, right? I mean, they continue to have inconsistency with their strikers. And obviously, if you have a better playmaker like Reynoso, some of those finishes are easier. But how much of this is just a straight line from no Reynoso equals bad offense? And how much of it is a little more nuanced? And, hey, they still haven't figured out the the finishing part on this team. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. They They really... The striker struggles are not a new thing around Minnesota. Those striker struggles really go back to 2018. <laughs> they yeah. their their first season they got 14 goals from Christian Ramirez. The next season they traded him halfway through the season after he'd scored seven. None of their strikers have reached double digits since then. They early on they tried to draft a couple. They drafted Abu Donladi in their first year with their with the first overall pick. They drafted Mason Toya a year later. Both of those guys eventually left. Don, Don Laddie came back but wasn't successful. But since then, they've they've made this effort. They they brought in a, a long string of guys from elsewhere, mostly from South America, but also Adrian Unu from France. And none of them have worked out. Unu got to seven. Luis Maria got nine last year. But those are the best tallies. None of them have gotten to double digits and goals of all these guys they brought in. And most of them just, you, you can read off these names, the longtime Loons fans, and they just end up sort of, ruefully shaking their heads like Angelo right. Rodriguez and <laughs> Ramon Abila. Just there's it's like there's Vikings kickers. Lineup. It's like it Vikings is, kickers. Minnesota United strikers and Vikings kickers are very similar. It's it, there's just a lot of Blair Walsh's in the Minnesota United striker lineup. And they're still searching for that. They're the the current the current crop is Still, Luis Amaria, who's really struggling. He has he has two goals this year, but both of them were penalties. Neither he has not looked good. He has he has looked really as bad as he's been since he's been here. Mender Garcia, who they brought in last year, young but not really making a play. When 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 you can't get a starting role over a guy like Amaria, who just can't find anything right now, you have to wonder. I I thought it was interesting. I actually just saw this before we started recording. There was a. Uh, there, there's a great website, American Soccer Analysis, that does a lot of analytic stuff about American soccer. And they sent out a survey to everybody in MLS who has analytics people. And one of the questions they asked was, who has the best analytics department in the in MLS and who has the worst one? And the two teams got 10 votes for the worst one, and that was Montreal and Minnesota. Wow. And, I mean... You, the other th- the other question they asked in that survey was what is the easiest position to analyze through through data and the one that all these analytics guys said was striker is the easiest position to do analytics wise so i don't think you can necessarily make a connection make an one to one connection between oh they can't find a striker and oh they don't have an analytics department but it certainly seems like it would be something that that would help them and if you look back on the number of guys they brought in from other leagues that have not had success in MLS. It's it's just it's one of those things. It's it, people like to just criticize the scouting staff as a whole for Minnesota United, but I don't think that's fair because they have brought in a lot of guys at other positions. For example, this year, Miguel Tapias they brought in at center back, and I think he's been really good. And like you said, defense has sort of become their identity by default. I think you were right in saying it was by default, but 
certainly bringing in a guy like Tapia shows that it's not just identifying guys or like you mentioned with the, uh, with goalkeepers that they've had, they've had a lot of success bringing in goalkeepers. They've had success in those areas. They just haven't had success bringing in strikers. So I don't know if it's necessarily a scouting, a scouting department right. wide or a team wide failure where they can't bring in, in any good new players. It really is just up front that they're really struggling. Now I want to get back to the, the defensive question in a minute. Cause I think that's, that's interesting. I think that has been a strength for them. Uh, you, talking about analytics got me interested in this idea of where that comes into play more in soccer. And I feel like it's maybe more of an emerging thing. Like we've seen a lot of other sports probably get there faster or, you know, the NBA certainly has embraced a lot of analytics. So has uh, baseball like, sports where it's a little easier to isolate soccer, maybe a little bit like hockey feels kind of more mm-hmm. fluid, harder to isolate sometimes. What are, what in your estimation, as you've kind of looked at some of this stuff, at least, you know, from a, from a cursory perspective, what, what of it is useful to you or, or makes a lot of sense is like, Hey, this data is actually telling us something about this player that maybe we didn't think, um, you know, that's not talking about specific players necessarily, but specific data that, that you find compelling. Yeah. I think a lot like in hockey, hockey has really gotten into expected goals numbers. And I think, Hockey and soccer are similar in that in a lot of ways, in a lot of ways, looking at that chance creation and getting into spots to score is almost more important, partially because it's a bigger sample size, but it's almost more important to get into good areas to score and to have chances to score than it is to necessarily just look and say, all right, this guy had 11 chances to score and he scored twice or whatever. Obviously, finishing is one of one of the jokes that people always talk about in soccer is whether finishing is a thing or not and whether whether actually finishing those chances is good or whether just getting into those spots is good. Obviously, scoring goals is good, but I think soccer and hockey is a good comparison in that looking at expected goals, looking at chance creation, looking at ball progression, those kind of things of getting into offensive spaces. Those are that's pretty useful data. And in the same way as hockey, the hard thing to pick out a lot of the times is defensive numbers. And I think hockey has done, I mean, hockey's done a good job of looking at at chances prevented and stuff like that. Soccer, I think, is a little bit behind in defensive numbers. It's hard to find, it's hard to find good defensive ratings for soccer players. And so that sort of trickles up the field to guys who play as defensive midfielders and stuff like that, where you can, you can look at the team defensive numbers a little bit, but it's hard to, it's hard to isolate a good number where you can say this center back does this well based on this number, or even this goalkeeper does this well based on this number. There's a lot of there's a lot of data, but it's much easier to look at the attacking half of the field rather than the defensive half of the field. Data or otherwise, why why has the defense been so good this year? Why have they been so good at at goal prevention? Because when they were winning or at least you know getting consistent points early in the year, it was a lot of on the defensive end, and you know frankly even in this you know winless stretch you know they had a 0-0 draw the other day they're at least taking home a point even though they don't score a goal that says something about the defense too what what's been good about that what's driving that yeah I think we mentioned Miguel Tapias I think having him at center back he's been healthy Michael Boxall has been healthy having sort of two pretty well established center backs is obviously a big deal but I think more than anything in terms of their defensive identity it's been more of a defensive focus from from what I'm looking at from the way they play it's certainly more focused on let's sit back let's try to create some chances off the counter attack more than even in even in past years especially when they had a guy like Darwin Quintero or Emmanuel Reynoso 
especially at home, they would try to they would try to play. They would try to come out and play and try to possess the ball a little bit on offense. Maybe not so much on the road. They their tendency has always been to sort of sit back and try to score on the counter on the road. But this year, even at home, it's a little bit more of we're going to try to sit back. We're going to be defensively solid. They they tend to try to create a lot of attacking chances by pushing fullbacks forward, by pushing wingers forward into the attack. Those guys in, in general, I think are sitting back a little bit more defensively and trying to cover some of the defensive stuff rather than playing expansively offensively. And I think it's, it's obviously working. They haven't given up more than two goals in a game this year. They've got how many clean sheets, three clean sheets, four clean sheets, something like that. So it's, it's working in the sense that they're defensively responsible, but it's hard to take both that defensive responsibility and also sort of a lack of offensive talent and combine those things into, we're going to sit back defensively, but we're also going to score on the counter. They're just having a hard time of doing that second part. Final thought then. I mean, if we kind of take all this in, context and when you were talking about kind of the evolution of maybe some of their thinking and some of their strategy reminds me a little bit of the difference between the wild last year and the wild this year maybe the the hockey analytics stuff got me thinking hockey again and we thought that the wilds kind of revamped style where they're more likely to win three two than win five four might bear fruit in the playoffs it did not spoiler alert but Mm. does this potentially you know, if they can figure out the offense, if they get something sorted, whether it's Reynoso coming back, whether it's someone in the next transfer window that helps them, can this eventually be something where they round into a team that's more dangerous in the postseason because they do have this defensive identity? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I, I don't think so. Their their problem over the last few years has rarely been that their defense is a disaster. They had, I, I can think of one game where true de- where the true defensive disaster was what killed them over the last couple of years. They've, they've always been reasonably solid on defense, but they really have struggled. Obviously they have Reynoso who has been, has been a, uh, somebody who's really affected that, but beyond Reynoso, they've really struggled over the past few years. And like I said, that doesn't just go back to Luis Amaria and Mender Garcia this year. That goes back to Amaria last year, Adrian Anu the year before all of these guys going back all the way, almost to the start of the franchise where they just, they don't have that offensive focal point. They don't have anybody they can count on to get goals. And they've always relied on that central attacking midfielder to not only try to set up that chance creation, but also score goals. And that's, that's made things hard for him. And we, I feel like we've been talking about the same things with Minnesota United about not finishing chances, about not creating chances, not just this year, but for years before that. So they're, they're going to have to score in the playoffs. It's not just, <laughs> it's not just about, Oh, they're, they're getting defensively beat in the playoffs. It's, and obviously soccer and hockey are different sports. It's not like, it's not quite like hockey where, oh, we played hard all year, but now we're going to turn it up to twice right. as playing twice as hard in the playoffs and really go after this. So, so they're they're just the soccer wild, and there's no hope. Well, it's after the wild last week. It's hard to have any hope about anything. Well, that's how we're going to leave you, John. Appreciate it as always. Um, we'll talk to you <laughs> soon. Follow John's coverage everywhere you can find him, especially right here, but also like I said on the Sportive Podcast or on his own website. John, talk to you soon. Leave it to the Minnesota Wild to ruin everybody's dreams. Really good stuff from John Marthaler. He's going to have me going down a rabbit hole like I need more rabbit holes to crawl down, especially 
when it comes to advanced stats, but that kind of stuff fascinates me. Anytime I find a new toy or a new something to check out, I always do that. So I'm going to have to bug him a little bit to take me take me on a journey down those soccer numbers, a little bit more of the expected goals. Um, maybe coming to a Randball post near you, we'll see see how far it takes me, see how far how long it takes me to get out of that rabbit hole sometimes determines how long it takes me to write about something. Got to understand it before you can write about it, but Good perspectives overall from John on the on the on the loons. Big match for them this weekend. We'll see if they can score a goal, maybe stop this winless streak in Major League Soccer. Let us finish with the cooler. Like I said at the jump, had a thought about the Vikings. Stop the presses, right? Kirk Cousins and the Vikings. I'm always thinking about them, but I saw Todd McShay's way too early 2024 mock draft. You know, it's we just had the draft last week, but already we're talking about 2024. And already in Todd Mock in Todd McShay's Todd Mockshay, maybe you should call him Todd Mockshay. Let's call him Todd Mockshay instead of Todd McShay. We don't even know the draft order. We're just guessing at it. He's got the Vikings picking 20th, which seems optimistic to me, but that's a point that I'll return to. But first things first, he has them taking a quarterback, JJ McCarthy, quarterback from Michigan. Again, who knows who's going to be the quarterbacks that elevate themselves in the college game this year? Who knows where the Vikings are going to be drafting? Who knows this? Who knows that? This is all so speculative, but it is remindful of a couple things. One, that we're going to be talking about this for the duration of this season and into next offseason because Kirk Cousins is not under contract for next year. Unless that changes at some point between now and next middle of March when free agency starts again or February or whenever they would sign him potentially to a, an, ex, an extension that they didn't give him last season, last offseason, until that happens, until we get to that point, we are going to be talking about the possibility of the Vikings drafting a quarterback. We're going to be talking about, is this the end for Kirk Cousins? What are they going to do? And they've painted themselves into this corner, painted themselves into this conversation, this ongoing conversation by not being able to draft a quarterback this past year. Which brings me to the next point of this. Kirk Cousins is a good enough quarterback that he's probably not going to let the Vikings be really bad this year. I think the worst case scenario for them is probably seven or eight wins, right? Like kind of, you know, not in the playoffs, but in the hunt in that week 15, week 16, in the hunt graphic, third from the third from the bottom, it's still in the hunt. Best case scenario, I think, is still that they could win this division and be a playoff team again this year. Whatever that scenario, the best you're probably going to be picking next year in the draft with Kirk Cousins as your quarterback this year is maybe like the middle of the draft, you know, 14, 15, 16, something like that. Kirk Cousins holds the Vikings' future in his hands in more ways than one. How he plays this year will not only determine what they might think of him for the future, it will determine what their draft pick might be next year. And the higher the draft pick you have, the better chance you have of getting a quarterback that you like. So this, to me, is the interesting dynamic with Kirk Cousins. He's never going to be bad enough. His his ceiling is only so high, but his floor is relatively high for a floor. You're never probably going to bottom out with Kirk Cousins, and you're never going to get that high, high, high draft pick that's going to let you go up and get one of those real blue-chip guys. Now, it's a better draft, better quarterback draft than this past year. I will grant you that. At least it looks like it's going to be. But Kirk Cousins is going to be front and center with this, and as long as you have him, it's going to be hard to get his replacement. And that, to me, is kind of the interesting Pandora's box that they have opened up and shut and opened up and shut with the, with the decisions they've made in the last couple of months that will do it for me today hope you enjoyed the entirety of this week on daily delivery join me next week plenty of good stuff Roycey on monday lots of other thoughts coming up next week as well until then enjoy the weekend